Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Continuum, composed by George Legati and performed by Antoinette Vischer from 1968. We announced that today's show would be on the music of Cuba, but political events prompt us to try to assess our current moment. We'll be joined by Ned Sublight on Cuba and its music at a later date. And so this show, titled The Elected Coup, is about what Boss Trump and his blogger-in-chief Steve Bannon and a strange circle of insiders hath wrought in the last... Well, in the past 11 days. Joining me to try to understand what's going on are Jeffrey Isaac, who's in the studio with me, and Samuel Moyne, who is joining us via Skype. Jeffrey Isaac is James H. Rudy Professor of Political Science at Indiana University. He's editor-in-chief of the journal Perspectives on Politics and the author and editor of several books, including The Poverty of Progressivism and Democracy in Dark Times. Samuel Moyne is Jeremiah Smith, Jr., professor of law and professor of history at Harvard University. His areas of interest include international law, human rights, the law of war, and legal thought in both historical and current perspective. He's the editor of the journal Humanity and, excuse me, he's the co-editor of the journal Humanity and the author of The Last Utopia, Human Rights and History, and most recently, Christian Human Rights. Thanks, Jeff and Sam, for joining me on Interchange. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, this one's a hard one, I guess, where in the world to begin, right? I had a friend who wrote me today to ask how I'd approach the show, and I literally had no answer. Uh, that's why you invite people on the show, so they have answers. So, uh, our president tweets, and his executive orders and national security advice is coming from Breitbart blogger Steve Bannon. This morning's tweets, Nancy Pelosi and fake tears Chuck Schumer held a rally at the steps of the Supreme Court and Mike did not work. A mess, just like Dem Party. (laughs) When will the Democrats give us our attorney general and rest of cabinet? They should be ashamed of themselves. No wonder D.C. doesn't work. That's from this morning's tweets. That was a very good Alec Baldwin that you did. <laughs> I should have tried. I pursed my lips together. Uh, but more uh, than this craziness is happening, and it seems like the clown car's full, but no one's playing for laughs here. Uh, first, though, let's figure out how we got here, maybe. There's a reality show star, a real estate mogul, plausibly a bankrupt, even now as we still have no tax returns, as far as I can figure. Donald Trump is president and CEO. How'd we get here? Jeff, any answers? <laughs> How do we get to Donald Trump as president? That's such a huge question, and it's one that so many smart and interesting people have been discussing and even to some extent debating. Uh, I'm curious to know what what Sam thinks, but since you started by asking me, I won't turn it to Sam. (laughs) I'm the guest. You're the host, uh, the inquisitor. Um, (laughs) um, Well, first of all, uh, where we are is in a place where an authoritarian right-wing populist is heading a government. Um, This place is a place that also many other uh, countries in Europe are in. I do think it's worthwhile to keep in mind the kind of global situation and the fact that in this respect, the United States is not exceptional. Although we might have an exceptionally pathological version of this, at least at the level of the leadership. Um, So there's a crisis of capitalism, a crisis of liberal democracy. There's a a global context in which party systems are being challenged and outsiders are rising to the fore. Um, There's obviously, I think fair to say, a crisis of legitimacy 
of liberal democracy. That's a big part of this. There's another part of this, which is, I think, more contingent, you know, at, which has to do with the fact that Donald Trump uh, won an election under a, a doubly bizarre circumstances. First, the bizarre circumstances of the American electoral system, which doesn't really have a national electoral system, and whose presidential elections are governed by this very strange institution called the Electoral College. And the second set of bizarre circumstances has to do with the various interventions um, by FBI Director Comey, the hacking. These things are significant. I don't think they're insignificant. Um, I think it could well have been otherwise and we could have Hillary Clinton as president of the United States. The rest of Europe would still be in crisis. We would also be in crisis, although a less immediate crisis than we are currently in. Uh, I'll stop for now and let Sam maybe. Oh, do you, Sam, do you want to step in? Uh, I, you know, I, I think I should first say that, you know, everyone's as confused as everyone else both as to how we got here and even where we are. Mm. But um, to add to Jeff's story, which I think is largely right, although I, I think I wanna um, try to add a bit of calm, I don't think it's very clear whether we're in a, an emergency or what kind. I, I just, I think we have to add that um, the Democratic Party um, over a generation has lost its way yeah. And Hillary Clinton made some very short-term strategic missteps. Uh, and it's going to be very hard to Monday morning quarterback this last election because a lot of things intervened. Uh, you know, the leaks that Vladimir Putin engineered uh, were leaks of true facts about what the, what the Democratic National Committee was doing and thought. Um, and... It, it seems like the role of, of, of the Democrats and of Hillary Clinton in particular in losing the election is one to which I'd give the biggest place. And unfortunately, it's left us in an incredible uh, pickle. So we have, you're saying basically Democrats lost the election, um, that it was theirs to win for the most part. Trump uh, swept in under Democratic Party incompetence? As far as, as I have understood, the election polling reveals a, a, a pretty um, clear picture that uh, in, in urban centers, uh, she didn't garner the enthusiasm that Barack Obama uh, did in either of his two runs. And some of those who had already been willing to switch side as far back as 1980 um, and have been wayward, that's the old white male middle class that had been the Democrats' core constituency, supported him in some key precincts. Uh, and of course, in the Middle West, so-called firewall, where it, it broke down. Um, I think it's quite extraordinary that it was as close as it was. And that's, I think, largely the doing of the Democrats in general and, the, and Hillary Clinton in particular. So you, you are uh, surprised that it was close in the first place? Like not just the loss, but the closeness. Uh, I, I think I think you know there are multiple stages to how we got here. First was the Republican nominating contest, which I think was shocking, mm. and he he survived and uh, and and succeeded largely as a result of the huge set of contingencies there, um, and uh, you know not to mention a lot of free media. We can talk about you know with the media if you want, and then we get to the general contest and it was her election to lose mm. especially once donald trump was the nominee um 
and she lost it. Hmm. And that's, uh, that's where I would personally place much of the blame. I think we can't look away from the role of Vladimir Putin, especially now that the person he was clearly trying to help is in power. And if our worst, you know, nightmares are are, are realized, that's going to be the source of the threat now. Hmm. Can I just clarify something? Yeah, let's, let's just go ahead, Jeff. Because I, I, I agree with actually almost everything that Sam said. I, I certainly don't think that Putin turned the election. And clearly, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton lost. That is a fact. That is true. And, and um, Donald Trump won. Um, and I think it, the Democratic Party is very weak. That has a lot to do with it. Sure. Um, I th- yes, the question of how we got here is a very complicated one. <laughs> I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm uh, Sam, there's also the question about uh, where we are, mm-hmm. um, yep. which actually yep. is of more concern to me than sure. the question of yeah, explaining sure. uh, how, how Hillary yeah. ran a bad campaign or whatever. Yeah, it so. would be hard to, uh, to I, I didn't necessarily want to go back and do exactly how we got here, rather to say that we, we are here and I'm always shocked at where we are in terms of Donald Trump generally. Now we can go forward and, and maybe speak about the, the inner circle around him as well um, to try to understand who exactly is pulling the strings or writing the executive orders, things of that nature. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is the elected coup about Trump's executive orders and inner circle of policy advisors. Jeffrey Isaac is in the studio with me, Samuel Moyne with us via Skype. So um, that's really the the issue for me at this point, because it comes when, when I was asking about how we got here, it has this this sort of crossover to the, the people who are writing these executive orders, who are advising Trump as well, uh, are part of how Trump made his way into into office as well, right? So Breitbart, there's a white supremacist issue that we would need to think about here as well. These are the people that are still advising him. Um, Breitbart s- sits right in the middle of that as well. It seems to go into that white supremacist space uh, nicely. There's Jared Kushner, who's um, his son-in-law married to Ivanka, is that right? I get confused a little yes. bit. Yes. Okay. That's right. Um, so these are the people that are around Trump right now and advising him on what to do. Uh, I don't know if either of you, you would say these are the right people to have in place. Are they doing things that make sense? Uh, these executive orders have a sense to them. We'll talk about the executive orders as well. I know there's a lot to kind of go through here. So let's start with with Bannon first. Why don't we? So Bannon is kind of the right hand man, right? Jeff, is that is that is that ca- the case? You think? Somewhat. I mean, I I do think that some of these things are are kind of obscure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump is the ultimate anti-politician. Mm-hmm. He basically runs his life like a dictatorship, and he has. Uh, attached himself to a group of people, almost all of whom are underlings. I think uh, Bannon is unique in in the sense that he has a kind of independent power base, and I think a number of people have commented on this. Trump seems to regard Bannon as a kind of colleague. Jared Kushner is, you know, like a little boy. He's family. Um, Yeah, I think Bannon is a crucial player, clearly. The fact that he elevated him to the principals group of the National Security Council, which is uh, terrifying. Uh, 
speaks to that. Right. Well, that's the question I would ask. You know, how is it? It's one of those things that when you sit around and don't do anything in terms of government, you sit, you go to school, you get a job, you maybe vote here and there, you, the most you do, maybe get on the school board. There's, there's a sense of what politics is. And at this larger level, there are these very, very important um, profound positions in, in government that are uh, sort of difficult to comprehend that there are actual flesh and blood men and women who have their own lives, ideologies, perspectives on these things. And I think for me, this the election itself actually made that clearer to me. These are people that I don't know that I would imagine ever holding power in this way, but I'm not sure if I imagined other people holding power. Like there's this this perspective of pre- the presidency of government, of generals, of chiefs of staff, of all these people being a certain type of person, a certain kind of expert uh, that we want to entrust with with power, national power. So this election for me has sort of thrown that into my face and say, who are the people that make these decisions? How do they come to be where they are? Who, who decides that they have the right expertise? All these kinds of things. So I guess that's where I'm, I'm sitting now. Not that I think that, that Steve Bannon should be there or mm. Jared Kushner, but to say, how is it that you can just get away with putting people that you knew down the block? Well, I'll just say a couple of things, and then I'm sure Sam has things to say. Well, so, and this, this goes to the fact that this whole entire election took, takes place in a context in the United States, but also, I think, again, more generally among the so-called advanced liberal democracies of crises of the party system. Mm. Uh, both both parties, It's everything Sam said about the Democratic Party is true. And we should also mention that there was a really important insurgent candidacy, Bernie Sanders. But everything he said about the Democratic Party is true. And also, he also indicated the same was true of the Republican Party. Uh, Trump was, the, was considered the least likely person to rise to the top of that pool, and he beat everybody, all the establishment candidates. He beat former governors, senators, etc. Um, so we have a situation. It's a, I think two things are going on. One is uh, a, a, a person who has particular connections to the media th- as, by virtue of being a reality mm-hmm. st- TV star mm-hmm. was able to really use the media, in all media, uh, to elevate himself uh, and he does. He's not a political person. He has no political experience. He's never been interested in holding public office at all. He has no concept of public service, etc. Mm. There's that. And then there's, I think, the fact that that um, he's he's really a miserable person. I'm, I'm, I mean, this is not a profound political uh, analysis. <laughs> he is surrounded by some of the worst people that I think have ever been involved in American public life, mm. and and um, they're drawn to him. He's drawn to them, and and they're there. And, uh, you know, the textbooks in American uh, political, you know, American government don't really prepare us for this scenario. Yeah, that's where I'm sitting right now, unprepared. Sam? I, I think this, these are the crucial questions. Um, Doug is right that, you know, the people he's elevated to power are somewhere between, um, you know, uh, 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 extremely dangerous and merely unqualified. <laughs> um, and the reason they're there is because um, the, 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 the processes we rely on of parties cultivating various elites, including when they're out of power, to serve as professionals once they're in power, broke down. Uh, and it's, it's a quite remarkable circumstance, um, certainly in the last 50 or 100 years of American history. Now, we could look back and observe that you know, there was a much greater place for, let's call them amateurs, in politics um, before its professionalization, um, where whenever you want to date that. Um, 
who knows what Jared Kushner will do. Um, he seems to play a moderating role, um, at least with respect to his father-in-law, but he's been given the portfolio of Israel-Palestine, um, and his views on that are, 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 are seemingly dangerous. Mm. Um, worse, I think, is, is Steve Bannon, mm. who, on, on whom we don't have a lot of information, but we have enough to um, know that he's a reader um, and he's developed his own boutique ideology through reading in various, um, you know, right-wing um, nooks. And what we do know is, I think, quite troubling. Um, now, there's a debate to have about the speed at which this has unfolded in the past 10 days. How worried ought we to be based on the concrete things that have happened so far? Is he or is Trump engineering a coup, or is this playing by the rules. Um, that's, I think that's maybe the important debate we should, we should make sure and have at least briefly because we have to make sure to have the right level of, of fear and the right level um, you know, of, of attention hmm. as, as this situation unfolds. It's time for a break. Our music will be Sweet for Trayvon and Thousands More by Trio 3 and VJ Iyer. More with Jeff Isaac and Sam Moyne on Trump's executive orders when Interchange returns on WFHB. Listening to WFHB broadcasting live from beautiful downtown Bloomington, where it is currently 43 degrees, a low tonight expected at 35 degrees. Tomorrow, day and evening will look and feel a whole lot similar. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976. Serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening, featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails, the Uptown Cafe is located in downtown Bloomington. More information is available online at the hyphen uptown.com. Support also comes from Cardinal Spirits, located at 922 South Morton Street. Cardinal Spirits is an Indiana craft distillery in Bloomington, making whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, and liqueurs. Open every day, kids and dogs welcome on the patio. Hours and more information at 812-202-6789 or online at cardinalspirits.com. Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. 
Our show is the elected coup about Trump's executive orders and inner circle of policy advisors. Jeffrey Isaac, professor of political science at Indiana University, is in the studio with me. And Samuel Moyne, professor of law and history at Harvard University, is with us via Skype. Uh, We went to the break talking about scary people, dangerous people, Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner. Uh, Sam, you mentioned Jared Kushner having Israel-Palestine as a foreign policy portfolio. What's that about? We, we don't know. All we know is he's visited once and he seems to have some connections, um, you know, to to the settler movement. But it, it's really quite unclear what he plans to do. Famously, Donald Trump, uh, you know, gave a shout out to him recently saying that if if he couldn't solve, you know, the the problem there, no one could. <laughs> but, you know, which is, is, is another of his amazing statements. On the other hand, we could say the professionals have tried and failed for decades. Um, you know, you never know. Jared seems one of the least dangerous of the people in power right now. But uh, it's uh, it, it's it's quite unclear. I'm not sure I agree with that about Jared. Certainly, I think uh, Jared and his family are connected, I mean, to very far right. Uh American Jews connected to the very far right, Kahanaist people in Israel, far to the right, even of Netanyahu, and and we know this. Uh, I think you're right. How that plays out in terms of foreign policy, we don't know. But I, 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 there's very little evidence that Jared Kushner uh, has any decent political values or commitment to anything worthwhile, this one thing, other than making money, um, is really uh, very disturbing and very far from the mainstream of uh, uh, American Jewish opinion, as, as you know, Sam. I, I, think that's all, I think that's all right. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm looking on the bright side, but the <laughs> evidence is grim. I'm looking at uh, Mattis as the, uh, you know, the adult yeah, in the room. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Matt, Mattis, Mattis is clearly the most mainstream of, of the major appointees. That's true. Well, um, so um, this calls into question, again, This uh, and Jeff, uh, Jeff just said it, the idea that you would want someone in, in power to have political ideas and understanding that is of a nature that you might be able to un- understand also. So someone you can uh, listen to and feel that they have a principled position in p- particular political ideas. So what, what does that mean that we can't necessarily determine where these, these people live outside of making money? I think is, is, the, is the executive order barrage that we just got, 17 executive orders and memoranda um, since th- taking office, uh, th- is that a clear indication of, of what the political ideology is here? There, I, I mean, I think there's clear, there's, I, I, in my opinion, and this relates to Bannon, this is where uh, Bannon and uh, Trump are partners. Um, There's an ideology. Uh, You could describe it as right-wing populist. You could describe it as right-wing nationalist or xenophobic nationalism. Uh, Walls all around are crucial to this, literal and figurative walls, Um, keeping out um, enemies of the people foreign, but maybe also domestic, like the media. Mm -hmm. Um, Islamophobia is central to this, and this is a central theme of Bannon. This is also 
one of the places where there's intersection with, let's say, some of the intellectual tendencies surrounding Putin. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's, I mean, I wouldn't say this is a well thought out systematic political theory, but there's a set of, there's a rhetoric, there's a set of tropes, and there's a clear set of um, uh, commitments there. I mean, you know, with Trump's inauguration speech and this day of devotion that he announced, uh, on the occasion of his ascendancy, mm-hmm. there's a special day of patriotic devotion. This is very scary uh, language, and a number of commentators have pointed out. So I think there are values there. They're very dangerous, anti-liberal, um, anti-democratic in a lot of ways, anti-cosmopolitan. Um, hmm. But don't we have the the problem that, uh, which I think you again pointed out, Jeff, in, in several places, but if we're having a failure of liberal democracy smack dab in the middle of what is, you know, decades of neoliberal economic policies, is that part of the issue that we've grown to be uh, to see ourselves as people who are just human resources. We just need to be uh, money makers ourselves. We need to value all of our life, all of our things we do, our very self, our children as um, resources that will have to turn a profit at some point, that we live within that economic space makes it very easy uh, to kind of lose a sense of what community is, what politics is outside of the money equation. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that completely. And, you know, Sam and I were talking before about this uh, this 2014 uh, Skyped interview that Bannon gave, which is probably the most sustained statement that he's given. That's at the and, and he talks about this. I mean, he, he is decent. He's a smart. He's a brilliant guy, I think. And he's like, I don't know how deeply read he is, but he's read a lot. And he talks about these very things in that mm. in that speech. And I think, you know, this was this is also a point of contact with Trump. They are purporting to offer. Uh, by uh, Americans, uh, making America great again means also restoring some purpose beyond that. Now, of right. course, in the, particularly in the case of Trump, that's like really incredibly absurd <laughs> and right. ironic because it's all about making money. Right. But nonetheless, there is, yeah, I agree with you. Liberal, neoliberalism is part of the problem. And this nationalist populist ideology claims to be like a, a form of salvation. It's not. Right. Let, I'm wondering what Sam thinks. All, all of that is right. I, I just would, you know, I, I'll just put some footnotes in. Um, so first off, you know, many of the executive orders were from the standard Republican playbook and would have been instituted by any Republican president. For example, the global gag on on, on abortion, on talking about abortion by by by, by government actors. Um, I I think. It's only fair to say that Steve Bannon, based on that um, Vatican City interview, is is himself a harsh critic of neoliberalism mm. um, because he thinks that capitalism has to be grounded in religious nationalism. That's right. And that's the specific perspective from which he's operating right now. We'll talk a now, little bit more about that, Sam. Grounded in religious... How is capitalism grounded in <laughs> so, religious so nationalism? He, he appears to have a, a theory of history that capitalism um, is is a, a one of the fruits of Western civilization, i.e. Christian civilization. Um, and it, it was compatible with the you know ethnic peoplehood of various Western countries, including the United States. Um, so that's a, a white Christian people. Um, and what's happened recently is it's gotten out of hand, um, maybe under the direction of the, of the wrong groups, he might think. Um, 
you know, rootless cosmopolitans who place um, making money um, so high in their values scheme that they 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 they've lost touch with the 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 Christianity and the nationhood that that provides the the kind of setting for capitalism. He's certainly a capitalist. He's not a fan of globalization, and he he's he's he he clearly on the basis of that speech thinks it's come at too great a cost to basically white males mm. um, who provided you know the central you know the central actors in American history. So that's his that's that's the, those are the people for for whom he's thinking. Those are the people who have suffered American carnage, mm. you know, in the famous inauguration speech. Yes. Um, and what we don't knew, know is how much he's going to gut the system, and more importantly, Trump's going to let him uh, in in the name of restoring the the you know the 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 importance of that group. Hmm. So you, we're literally talking about white nationalist pride. I think that's right. Now, you know, if we go back, you know, I think we should you know acknowledge that. Um, We've we've had a harsh deportation regime under the prior president. Mm -hmm. We've had a war on terror um, in which there's been a lot of stigma placed on you know Muslims both within the United States and 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 and, and above all abroad. Mm -hmm. um, and so the fear is that you know we've missed an opportunity to deal with neoliberalism and and. My, my own view is that if we get too concerned about the present emergency, we'll, we'll get kind of confirmed in these different oppositional boxes we're in right at the moment. Hmm. Um, most people support what Trump is doing or the plurality, according to polls. There's different polls tell us different things. What we're not doing in protesting is engaging in outreach with Trump's voters, trying to understand their problems and how we need to tell them that Trump is not solving them. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is The Elected Coup about Trump's executive orders and the inner circle of policy advisors. I've got Jeffrey Isaac in the studio with me and Samuel Moyne, excuse me, Samuel Moyne via Skype. Uh, so, uh, Jeff, uh, take that further then. You, you have a sense, too, that this is at least uh, from Bannon's, uh, uh, in a Bannon space, that this is a white nationalist pride issue as well and that this, this has been the destruction of a white nationalist uh, working party, labor force. Uh, who, who, who has lost in this neoliberal world of white nationalism? Well, I mean, there are two issues. Uh, I think it's, it's worth, I'll say a word about that just by way of clarification. I think, in fact, Bannon himself is more complicated than that. A number of commentators have pointed that out. Um, uh, he's sufficiently um, ambiguous, without question, that everything that Sam attributed to him, I think is like reasonably attributed to him. And certainly this explains why it is that Breitbart and everything that he says is uh, embraced by neo-Nazis and by KKK members and by white supremacists. Uh, it's not clear to me that he is himself a white supremacist. I th and and I, I, it, ultimately, this really doesn't matter. He's playing that game, mm -hmm. and he's bringing it out. It, he's, he's, in that speech, he always talks about Judeo-Christian. Um, and this is, by the way, another reason why I, the Kushner thing, I think, is worth thinking about. You know, the, the two people who apparently wrote Trump's inaugural speech were Bannon and this guy Stephen Miller, 
who is another right-wing Jew. Mm. And Bannon has no problem dealing with right-wing Jews. And, you know, so I think the relationship that he has with hardcore white supremacy is complicated. But I think Sam is absolutely correct that the rhetoric that he puts out there all the time as an editor, because it's not just what he said, it's what his magazine, what his platform has pervaded for many years. And it is a kind of nostalgia for white Christian America. There's no question Mm -hmm. about it. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason why it has some of the plurality appeal that Sam also said. Mm. I would, uh, by the way, probably like in the broader scheme of things, Sam and I are very, very close uh, on these issues. But I want to just emphasize, so what Sam said about we don't want to place too much of a chance in responding to the state of emergency because we're not reaching out um, is, is something that some people are now saying I'd say some people on the left are saying, I'm seeing a lot on my Facebook feed. Uh, A a really interesting piece was posted today that basically said, all of these executive orders are a head fake. We Mm -hmm. don't want to go for the head fake. I don't think this is true. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a move. It's not the only move, but it's a move. And most of the people that I know who are responding very uh, actively to these authoritarian measures are also, at the same time, working to um, revitalize the left within the Democratic Party, thinking about outreach questions, having serious discussions, strategic discussions about how to win back the House of Representatives, whatever. I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. And from my perspective, and this may be just a slight difference of emphasis, or it might be more, there are elements of continuity between Obama and Trump, just as there are elements of continuity between Bush and Obama. And Obama did not turn back the war on terror. He continued it. By the way, one of the reasons he continued it, in my opinion, is because there is terror. But nonetheless, yes, it's true. There's continuity. There's also profound discontinuity. And I do believe that the Trump administration has been instituting very disturbing measures at a very furious pace. And this has created a lot of fear, and I think the fear is justified. And I think treating this as a state of emergency is wise. One other thing, I don't want to monopolize the conversation. Sam talked about before the fact that the global, the gag rule mm-hmm. would have been instituted by any Republican. I think he's right. In fact, I think this is the kind of thing that least interests Trump. And so I, I want to point out that while I think the Trump administration is an enormous danger to liberty, it's also the case that even within the Republican Party, there are significant fissures, and I think they will play out in interesting ways. And it may turn out to be the case that there is a crisis within the Republican Party over Trump. Mm. And we don't know. Well, so, I, I, go ahead, I, Sam. I, I, well, no, I, I think Jeff's right on in every respect. There's, there's not a zero-sum game. Critical right now is watchful attention yeah. um, about, you know, even the possibility of the worst outcomes because we're dealing with people whom we we don't know enough about except that they're potentially very scary. However, in less than two hours, Trump is going to announce a Supreme Court nominee. Mm. Um, And that's going to be red meat to the Christian right um, in all likelihood. Uh, And it indicates that, you know, there's a long game here. It has crucially to do with you know, the continued rule of law. If there's a coup, there's no Supreme Court. Um, 
certainly not playing the same role. Um, and yet, in a way, the the importance of of this appointment that's coming may trump, you know, forgive the expression, <laughs> um, these 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 very frightening but um, so far modest steps that um, Trump has taken in the direction of the end of liberal democracy. So we've got, if you like, two tracks running. Yeah. Um, our fear that the train is going to go off the rails beyond liberal democracy. Um, and we need to be concerned about that. But then we've got the very different kind of liberal democracy that Trump's creating through actions like the Supreme Court nomination. And there we have our fellow citizens who are supporting him. Um, you know, the Christian right who that did not support Trump in the nominating contest, but has become um, his most stalwart support because he's enacting policies that they like. And we have to find a way of warning them mm. and, and finding our way back to white males um, who are, have bolted from you know, the, the, the liberal democratic project and so in su such droves. It's time for a break. Our music will be another from Hungarian composer George Legati. This is one uh, called Sonata for Solo Cello, performed by Matthias Johansson. More with Jeff Isaac and Sam Moyne on Trump's executive orders when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for Interchange comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of internet, voice, and TV service, now also offering home automation and security systems for homes and offices throughout South Central Indiana. More information on Smithville's home automation service is available at smithvillesecurity.com. WFHB also enjoys support from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976 serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening. Featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe, located in downtown Bloomington. More information available online at the-uptown.com.
Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. Our show is The Elected Coup about Trump's executive orders and inner circle of policy advisors, primarily Steve Bannon. We've talked about this uh, this hour. I've got Jeffrey Isaac, professor of political science at Indiana University in the studio with me. Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Harvard University, is with us by Skype. Now, we went to the break talking about the Supreme Court nominee about to be announced. That's, um, uh, I just looked it up on the, the, from, I guess this is a Washington Post article. There are three uh, people on a short list here. Uh, I, su- I assume you, um, do you have a guess uh, or a favorite, either of you? No? No guess? Jeff? I, no. Sam may be following this more closely than I because uh, legal study is part of what right, that's true. he says he does. <laughs> so, Sam, you can I jump in. Any idea? No, I. You know, there's, there's. Uh, I, I have no special. I mean, I don't. You know, do the Supreme Court criminalology as part of my <laughs> work. I'm just sorry, so sir. <laughs> like Which but, of these guys but, are humanitarians? Or uh, but, uh, yeah. that's yeah. right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think we'll learn a lot about. I think it's been whittled to two, and two. Those mm. two have been, uh, you know, summoned um, as part of apparently, you know, a, a, a what what he wants to be a very dramatic announcement at eight, and and then the vetting will start. Mm. Um, I think. The third judge um, it w- was probably the least plausible of of the three. So it seems as if you know he was cut before the final verdict. Mm-hmm. So who's uh, left then? Um, j- uh, judge Neil Gorsuch, uh, who's on the Tenth Circuit. He's forty nine uh, years old. Okay. Yeah, and, I just looked it up. So and, and Judge Thomas Hardiman of Third Circuit. Hardiman uh, is uh, okay. So I, I know I know little to nothing about either of the two, and uh, they're both young men though, forty nine and fifty one. That's I, right. I, I think that's young. Anyway. Very young. Yeah, especially I to think. be on that. But we've been talking about the court here too, and one of the one of the things that came out with the immigration uh, order was that uh, certain uh, bodies out there uh, policing our world do not listen to the courts anymore. Is that something that we ought to pay attention to? Well, there are different courts as part of the thing. This is true. So, so. so I, I do think that actually, I think the ACLU and other legal groups have done some really good things in the past few days. Mm-hmm. And clearly, some judges, you know, some of them Democratic-appointed judges, um, some people in the Justice Department, uh, including people who were just fired, right. um, you know, have, uh, have let's just say... Uh, uh, resisted in some fashion or uh, articulated a commitment to the rule of law that stands in the way of some of these these orders and and I think that that will continue to play out as uh, in, importantly the supreme court if 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 either one of these uh, men is confirmed will clearly move to the right um there are other courts uh you know to come back to Sam's point about the democratic party and its disarray and its weakness and its disappointing leaderless response to everything we're discussing, it will be interesting to see uh, how those hearings uh, unfold. Clearly, the Democrats don't control the process, but they will have a chance. And it'll be interesting to see if there a, a point arises when uh, some of these uh, senatorial or congressional hearings become occasions for Democrats with spine to start, you know, really mobilizing an opposition as part of this long game that Sam was talking about. Sam, you, you know, think so? I, I, I mm-hmm. think I think that's that's exactly 
on point. I, you know, Doug, you, you, you alluded earlier to the possibility that kind of our public spirit has been eviscerated. Mm-hmm. And that, if that's so, I think we still ought to be heartened by the fact that when red lines are crossed, citizens have been willing to come out um, you know, in the name of what they see as the common good. And you have these, these judges and, and other actors. Um, now, the Democratic Party insofar as you think it, it's going to, 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 to have to stand up, um, in a sense, remains out of the fight so far. Um, individual senators have been voting um, Trump's nominees through, getting a lot of heat for doing so, mm-hmm. um, but it seems as if they may have a strategy of picking their battles, waiting for this nomination. Uh, which they can't stop, they, uh, especially if uh, the, the Republicans choose to change the filibuster rules. Hmm. Um, but the Democratic Party, you know, not only has to resolve its own, you know, internal struggle over, you know, what, what, what policies to champion, but of course it has to strategize in very intricate ways. And so far we haven't seen, you know, very much of what, what it might uh, pitch in ordinary citizens and and let's say bureaucrats and judges um, are 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 there as firewalls so far and it seems as if we're we're we're, we're seeing that their role is going to matter a great deal. It's not we're nowhere near an authoritarian or totalitarian situation yet. Yeah, I There's agree. give and take. Hmm. I also think you know. So I just came from a faculty meeting. Um. And I think it's fair to say, I'll just speak very generally, and Sam can speak from his experience. I mean, universities are being challenged by this, and uh, by particularly the immigration executive orders. I think there will be other challenges, many, in my opinion, if Trump remains in office. But this is a challenge, and it's it's also an opportunity. there's been a range of kinds of responses among faculty groups, among in terms of presidential pronouncements. I think in general, from what I've seen, universities like my university have, um, at least in general, committed themselves to certain cosmopolitan ideas, certain ideas of support of their students who are abroad, uh, 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 visa holders, and I think this will be a challenge in the days and weeks to come. But in- universities will can play a, an important. Well, it's another site in civil society. Right. Um, I don't know what you think about that, Sam. I, I, I completely agree. Um, I completely agree. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the only, you know, worry I would add is, is that as a long-term strategy, um, you know, if, if, if we have institutions that confirm the divisions in the country, yeah. um, then we, we, don't get, we don't get out of the labyrinth. Hmm. Well, we have right now, we talk about the university, and that's a good, a good place to, to talk locally here as well for us. But uh, as, as uh, Jeff was saying, our president, IU president Michael McRobbie issued a statement on the 29th after the immigration uh, executive order on the 27th. And uh, what I think are the salient parts, I suppose, are, are these, that the, he says, quote, the executive order issued on Friday that bars citizens and refugees from certain countries from entering the U.S. is contrary to the very core of our values as an institution committed to excellence and innovation, two of my favorite words, a diversity of community and ideas, respect for and dignity of others, uh, engagement in the economic that's the first word we use, civic, cultural, and social development of our state, our nation, and our world. 
Further down, he says, we recognize the critical importance of a strong and effective visa process to protecting the national security, which is why we continue to support collaborative efforts that ensure the visa system prevents entry from anyone who wishes harm to Americans. I think it's a problematic statement personally. I think it's, you know, middle of the road at best. And this is a CEO of a business institution also. So he's got to play this, I suppose, close to the best. Um, it's... I don't know that it says anything in particularly strong about supporting anyone. I don't know what you think, Jeff. Well, um, I, I basically agree with you. Um, I don't really expect very much more from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of it, well, let's just say it is a fact that he is the CEO of a public university in a red state. Right. And, um, you know, well, state funding is a declining, a declining percentage. I think it's 16 of, or 15 yeah, percent. But it still of, matters. Right. It matters a lot. Right. And it matters ideologically, too. So mm-hmm. I, I think he's in a difficult position. And clearly, I mean, I, I, there's a petition circulating that I signed, and there, are, and there are, I think, a lot of faculty and others on the campus that want to see a stronger statement, um, particularly a more concrete statement about the steps that will be taken mm-hmm. to provide the kinds of a real meaningful support to our students who are vulnerable. Um, On the other hand, I mean, along with that statement were a couple of other statements from administrators, and I do think there's some effort to provide um, greater information, counseling, assistance. Again, it's all vague and insufficient. And one one site of activism is trying to move the university to a better place. And, And then there are, of course, other sites of activism within the university and also outside it. I, I, I do want to mention, as you know, that uh, a number of the uh, a number of my colleagues, a number of our local citizens uh, participated, helped organize a terrific demonstration on the courthouse mm-hmm. on Sunday. And I do think, at least in part, President McRobbie's statement is a response to the fact that uh, there's been a mobilization. And I think it's important that there continue to be a mobilization, mm-hmm. a mobilization. Um, I don't agree with everything that has been called for by the people involved in the mobilization, but I agree with the mobilization. I, put, I join with them in it, and I think that the idea that we need to push forward and keep this on the agenda is absolutely indispensable. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a couple of things that uh, in talking about protests or gathering together or having large groups of people together. Obviously, we just had the Women's March, which had uh, over three million marchers across the country, uh, a vast amount of people marching. We have had multiple uh, Black Lives Matters uh, protests and marches and uh, protests in the street and blocking traffic and blocking commerce, etc. So we do have uh, groups that are mobilizing in some ways. Now, I don't know where that goes. I don't know what we can do from there. I don't know how well we're organized underneath that. Uh, obviously, if you can get three million people moving, maybe we can get them to do other things as well. That's women and African Americans primarily. Is that is that our hope? Sam, Sam's pointing to something I, I, else. I, I don't think it can be the whole the whole yeah. hope. I mean, there's there's got to be a complex ecology, and mm-hmm. we can't we can't play every role ourselves. I agree. Um, I, I I you know without popular you know um, people willing to go out into the street. We do have these faceless bureaucracies and, and spineless politicians, and, and they're going to be pushed precisely by shows of emotional support and stands on high principle. However, there are all the bureaucrats and university presidents and, and, and indeed congressmen and women 
and um, they're they're going to be different creatures, buffeted by all kinds of different forces. I think it's also fair to say that you know some of our enemies are going to be repelled by our moral grandstanding, um, as they will see it. And mm. if we tell them that they're not hurt by accepting refugees economically, but actually helped, especially you know when universities take them, you know to increase the stock of knowledge and and uh, spur commerce, then that might be you know as it's not a perfect you know philosophical view, but it might be the rhetoric that um, you know changes a few minds. So I think you know the more the better of the different kinds of approaches just to see what's working um, in this scary situation. Well, you both said scary many times. So are are, are you both scared? I am. I think there's never been as 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 frightening a moment. In, in our lifetimes, the three of us. Um, now, you know, we're, 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 we're white men, and so we have less reason historically to be scared in the first place. Um, and, you know, many people will have said, well, it, there's, been, there's been terror and totalitarianism for other people, other Americans, before this moment. What's new? But I think we all know that something new is happening and it has consequences for all kinds of Americans, and we have to watch carefully that they don't, uh, you know, crystallize. Jeff? I, I completely agree. These, of course, are things that we're constantly talking about. Um, you know, uh, one of the... So in this faculty meeting today, um, I brought up the AAUP, which yeah, that... To, well, it's an important professional association, but let's say there's a broader point, which is that uh, there are a range of different kinds of solidarity that are important. I do think that academic freedom is something that that is potentially vulnerable, and I do think that um, intellectuals can play an important role as protesters, as participants in the public discourses of the long game. That Sam is talking about, and I this, and this is where I think so. One of the scariest things to me, there are many, and I think Sam is ultimately right. The people who are most vulnerable now are the people who are stranded at airports and can't come back or mm -hmm. can't visit their families, and and people like Sam and I are not in that category. But the, one of the scariest things to me about Trump from from his from his rallies, from his mob rallies when mm -hmm. he ran mm -hmm. in the primary and then in the general election, was the, the vilification of the press, almost an incitement to mob violence against yep. journalists who were present. And this is a very, very disturbing thing. And I do think, in general, freedom of expression is in jeopardy now. And I think people who speak out have reason to be afraid. Mm. Um, I mean, I... It's just one of a number of fears, but it is very scary because whatever you think about the forms of oppression that matter most, whatever you think about the forms of resistance to those oppressions that matter most, um, uh, political empowerment in large part involves speaking out, mm -hmm. communicating with others, free assembly. I, I worry about these things. Sam, you want the last word? I, I, I think, you know, as of yet, um, you know, the, the, the chilling that Donald Trump wants to have has in a way prompted just the reverse. It's backfired. 
Uh, he's gotten more speech. He's prompted more new actors to speak, to enter the streets, including my own young daughter, who had, like, you know, this transformative political experience at the Women's March in D.C. Hmm. Um, and, you know, we might look back, especially if these forces succeed in limiting whatever it is he plans to do, and think this was a, a, a discontinuous moment in American civis, civic activism when people were pried away from their screens or, or more exactly use their screens to learn how to become citizens again. Uh, now that's an optimistic uh, <laughs> outlook and uh, we have to do everything we can to use all of these different checking mechanisms in government, out of government. Uh, to, to, for it to come to pass. Well, I do like ending on a, a, a positive note, Sam. I appreciate that. Is this no Sonny worries. Rollins? Yes, this is. Uh, this, yeah, this is Sonny right. Rollins, Jeff. Uh, that's our show. Thanks to Jeff Isaac and Sam Moyne for joining us, helping us to gain perspective on what it is I think the game plan is for Trump's America. Is this your America? Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Sam. Thank well, you. Jazz. Yeah, we'll close the show with a selection from the Freedom Suite, the first track off the 1958 album Freedom Suite by saxophonist Sonny Rollins. He's joined by Oscar Pettiford on ba- uh, excuse me on bass and Max Roach on drums. Next time on Interchange, we've talked coup. Let's talk authoritarianism, everyday authoritarianism. Uh, and we can uh, see what we can do to stem the creeping tide. I'll talk to Tom Papinski, professor of government at Cornell, about weak leaders, bullies, and narcissists. I'll also speak with Peter Cole, a professor of history at Western Illinois University, about his recent piece titled, Want to Stop Trump? Take a page from these dock workers and stop working. Our creeping authoritarianism next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 530 on WFHB. Remember, you can find all of our programs online at wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and editor. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. And Joe Crawford is our executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, coming up next on WFHB. Thank you.